You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Back at chapter 2 this morning. Minor prophet in your Old Testament, not because he's like not important like the minor leagues. They're just called the minor prophets because they're short. They're, they're not short in stature. They might have been tall people. I don't know. The books are what they said was very short. So uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 is on page 934 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Way at the back of the Old Testament, 934. Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 2 through 5. Okay, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning, we're going to, in our time together, we're going to be looking at a passage that is so important that it is specifically directly quoted three times in the New Testament and alluded to, I think possibly even by Jesus himself. Um, and it's this statement here we see uh, that the righteous shall live by his faith. This morning, we're going to consider this statement, its context, and then what the writer of Hebrews, what the, he thought of this statement from the book of Habakkuk. But there are some statements that are so pivotal, they, they just really stick out. And so I'm going to get a little test for you of, let's see who knows pivotal statements from history or whatever. So we have statements like, et tu, Brute. Does anyone know what that's from? Et tu, Brute? Uh, that might have been the bad first choice. Huh? Julius Caesar, William Shakespeare, right? You know, right? He's, and it may, Caesar may have said, he may not have, meaning you too, Brutus. I think everyone's coming against him to kill him. He says, you too, Brutus. What about, I have a dream? You know that one, Morgan? Martin Luther King Jr., very good, as I have a dream speech. All right, so how about one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind? Right? Neil, Neil Armstrong on, on, the, on the moon, right? Yeah. John Glenn was the first guy that orbit the planet. So yes, we're, that's, that's, it's in the space industry, yes. Houston, we have a problem. The Apollo 11, right? They're, they're, oh, Houston, we got trouble. We've got a problem. We, we have these things. How about this might be a certain audience? Right turn, Clyde. Anyone know that one? I don't recommend the movie. But everyone, culturally, we, we understand what, I think we do. 
that, you know, Clint Eastwood, the chimpanzee? Dad knows it. Come on now. Uh, how about you can't handle the truth? Well, that's in famous movies. How about four score and seven years ago? What? Lincoln. And what's the, what's the speech? Gettysburg Address. See, you all know it. Look at this. I'll be back. I can't do it. Right? Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, right. Okay, we got to maybe. How about you complete me? Who knows this one? Jerry Maguire. All right. And one of my personal all favorites. To infinity and beyond. Does anyone know that one? Buzz Lightyear, which is really funny. I've thought too much about this, but you know, you can't go beyond infinity. That's what makes the statement so funny, you know, because it's to infinity and beyond. But infinity has no beyond. It's inf Anyway, so there's all kinds of statements like this, right, that, that just stick, that, that really stand out, that they become cultural statements. And within Christianity, this statement from Habakkuk is one of those statements that, that evidently caught the, the, the minds of the New Testament church and the, the writers of the New Testament that when they're thinking about what this progression of the Christian faith, how it has manifested in the Old Testament, they focus in on Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. That the righteous shall live by faith. In a, and not, not next week, because Jim's here, not next week because it's Easter, but the week after that. So just a few, three weeks or four weeks away, we're going to look at Paul's usage of this text in Romans chapter 1 and in Galatians chapter 3. But this morning, we're going to look at the Hebrews um, writer and his usage of the, the righteous shall live by faith. But take a few moments and consider again with me the context in which this is stated. So things are not going well for God's people in Jerusalem. Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern two tribes of Israel, the tribes of Judah. Israel, the northern ten tribes, have already gone into captivity by the Assyrians. They've come in and they've taken them over. The northern tribes of Israel are gone. Sin is rampant. Rebellion is the norm. Uh, this is just people are far and then, and then God, Habakkuk in this climate says, God, you can't let this keep happening. The world is just going to, it's going to trash. You've got to do something. People are sinning and, and, and rebelling against you. And God says, you're right. I've got to do something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, another name for the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. And they're going to come in and they're going to bring my justice and my wrath upon Jerusalem. And they're going to be taken into captivity. And Habakkuk says, uh, God, surely not. How can you raise up? I mean, we're bad, but the Chaldeans are a whole nother level of terrible. How can you, how can you give them success at our expense? And that's, that's this complaint that Habakkuk brings to God. And so, but God doubles down. He says, you bet, yes, it's going to happen. Write this vision down. Make it plain so that a herald may run with it. I will, it will, I will not delay. This will happen. And history proves this out. This, this is what happens. The Nebuchadnezzar does come in and he defeats the last tribes of Judah. One of the kings is taken away. A puppet king is put in his place, but then eventually even that puppet king is taken away. And this is the destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. They go into what is called the Babylonian exile. Now it's short-lived, but that's, that's, we're not, we're, we'll get to that later on. But in the midst of this promise that God will do what he has said that he will do, he speaks this phrase that's reverberated through the centuries among God's people, that the righteous shall live 
by faith. God is calling his people. God calls his people to trust him. This is so profound, I know. But this is the simple idea out of this phrase. God calls his people to trust him. The righteous shall live by faith. And they're calling them to trust in him. And this is huge when you consider all that's going on. Get your, if you still have your Bible out, flip with me back to Jeremiah chapter 23. We'll get to Hebrews, I promise. But this is fascinating. Um, Jeremiah, typically, if you're, a, if you're a through the Bible in a year person, or we do a through the Bible in two years plan, it feels like sometimes we're in Jeremiah three years of those two years because it's, it's a long book and it's, it's very chopped up. It's lots of, of prophecies from this prophet and this prophet and Jeremiah and responses. And it's kind of choppy. It's hard. It's not a, it doesn't read like a nice narrative. But... If you keep Habakkuk in your mind while you're going through Jeremiah, you can see um, the conflict that's going on in the nation at this time. Jeremiah chapter 23, that um, Habakkuk is not the only prophet. Jeremiah is likely is a contemporary of Habakkuk. Habakkuk would have been writing his book down slightly before the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah is prophesying as the Babylonians come in. He gets taken away even within the Babylonian captivity. But so they, they would have known of each other prophesying for God. But they were not the only ones prophesying. What you see in the book of Jeremiah is the presence of a lot of voices claiming to speak for God, saying that don't worry, everything is going to be just fine. Don't worry, Everything's going to be just fine. So Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 9, the little title there says, Lying Prophets. That lets you know these aren't the good guys. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, in which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the years of their punishment, declares the Lord. This is not good. If you missed the, the subtlety there, is that this is not good. There's these lying prophets, a slippery path in the dark. A slippery path in the light is not good. A slippery path in the dark is really not, you're good. You're guaranteed to fall. Ruin, destruction is coming upon them. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied, they prophesied Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil all of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Verse 16, therefore, the, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. 
They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it'll be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? And who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. We could go on. I mean, Jeremiah is full of all kinds of really encouraging language like that. It's a tough book to read. But for, for this reason, there's all of this destruction. And this is what's going on. Habakkuk has seen it coming. And, but what's interesting is that in the mix of that, there are these false prophets who are saying to the nation, listen, it's all going to go all right. Nebuchadnezzar can't beat us. God's not mad at us. Everything's just fine. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And we see this push and pull. Are the people of God ones who are going to trust in themselves or ones who are going to trust in God? Immediately, you can see the king's reaction. They like the guys who say everything's going to be good. <laughs> they like the guys who tell them, don't worry. you got to change nothing. Everything's going to be okay. By the, you're doing just fine. Don't worry about it. Trust in your own strength. Trust in your own goodness. Trust in your own way. Trust in your own mindset. Trust in your own knowledge. Everything's going to be okay. And then guys like Jeremiah, Habakkuk are having messages like, uh, judgment's coming. And in fact, Jeremiah prophesies, go gladly, put, lay your neck down before Nebuchadnezzar. You're going into captivity. Just go, just go into Babylon and submit yourself. This is what God is doing. But the people of God are put in this bind. Do we trust the message we'd like to hear? Do we trust the message coming from God? Do they trust themselves or do they trust God? What if following God means difficulty and hard times. They didn't like what Jeremiah has to say. They don't like the idea of what Habakkuk is coming up with, what he's hearing from God, because it means hard times are ahead. And so it's much more pleasant to say, I'll, take the, I'll, I'll trust God so long as what it means is everything is going to be rosy and just fine. But if it's bad, then it must not be from God. If there's difficulty in front of me, then it must not be from God. But what if following God does mean difficulty and hard times. What God has just told Habakkuk is that there are very difficult times on the horizon for God's people. And yet, he says, the righteous live by faith, believing God. Faith in what? Well, in God and in his promises. The context from Habakkuk is that God is going to send his people away into Babylonian captivity, but he's not finally and fully finished with his people. The call from Habakkuk is to trust God because God is a God who keeps his promises. On this side of the cross, we can see now how God was orchestrating all of this. He's orchestrating all of history to culminate in the coming of the one true king of Israel, the true son of David, Jesus Christ. The return is going to happen. There is going to be, after a time of Babylonian captivity, they are going to come back. They are going to build a new temple. And Jesus himself is going to arrive at that temple. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, and they're going to sing Hosanna to the king of kings. Jesus is going to show up. And this is, 
This is the culmination of all of this activity. As I said, next, in a few weeks, we'll be talking about the, the New Testament understanding of this passage from Romans and Galatians. And, and that, that understanding is primarily based upon that our justification, our being set right with God, is by faith alone, not by works. You do not lift to God the things I've done, but you come empty-handed and say, God, here's the rebellion I have committed. I'm not clinging to myself. I'm clinging to Jesus. And my justification, we'll look at it in Romans 1 and Galatians 3, my justification is by faith alone in Jesus and his work on the cross alone. And yes and amen, I hope that you, that isn't a shocking message to get from me. I hope you're used to hearing that from Darren. And I cannot wait to dig into those passages in a few weeks. But honestly, a worry that I have is that sometimes you can speak about the free gospel and people begin to think it's cheap. You can speak about the free gospel, believing in Christ and you can be saved. And you talk about the freeness of grace and people begin to communicate or hear that somehow that's just kind of cheap. It's okay, well, great. I'll have some of that. It's, uh, it's the little clearance rack in, in the corner of the shop. Or it's the phone call or the email that you get that says, hey, we've got something free for you. What's your first thought? Well, this must not be worth much. <laughs> if they're calling me up randomly and saying, hey, I've got a free gift for you. Hey, we've got a free cruise and all this stuff. I, I hang up immediately. And Darla always chats, what if that was a free cruise? It wasn't, right? Because it was free. And so you know that it wasn't. Uh, Darla and I have a bit of a running uh, a gag with each other when we go into a store and there's a clearance rack. She loves a clearance rack. I'm a little more skeptical of the clearance rack because I figure everything on the clearance rack is there for a reason, okay? No one else wanted it. So yes, it's cheaper, but there's a real good chance it's ugly, okay? I'm just being honest. You're welcome. I mean, you might find a few gems there occasionally, you know, if you're a special size or something, but generally, if it's cheap, if it's, if it's reduced price or free even, it's, it's, we, we know that it's kind of cheap. When we were doing, um, used to organize events, and you would try to have a concert, you'd pay big money to have a band come in and do a performance. If you said it was free, no one wanted to come hear the band, why? Because they figure if it's a free band, it's probably not any good. But if you charge five bucks for that same band, you'll get significantly more people because they feel like, well, this must be worth something because they're charging a cover. No one, this, this, is, this is our idea when we talk about the freeness of grace that it must not be worth much. It must be cheap. But we cannot tuck the work of Christ, the gospel message, into some little corner of existence. He rules over it all. The gospel is the good news that God's grace is absolutely free through Jesus Christ, that all who believe will be saved, but it is not cheap wine. It is not a cheap drink. Isaiah 55 says, come and drink and feast on priceless wine without cost. That the wine is unbelievably, it's priceless. It's of such high value. And yet all it requires to come to the table is a thirst. 
It doesn't mean that the wine is no good. The wine is still priceless. It's just free by God's grace. So not only is God promising some kind of salvation in an afterlife, that's the way I think we cheapen the gospel. We say things like, well, we want to believe in Jesus. You want to place your trust in him, repent of your sins. God will forgive you and you get to go to heaven forever. And it cheapens the reality that what God is doing is not just like helping you in some little area of your life or some little issue that you have, that Christ has come to promise a whole life rescue, such that when all is said and done, you will worship him for ceaseless days because of all the good that he's done for you all the way along the way, even when you didn't recognize that what he was doing was good. That God, when you become his child, he becomes for you 100% such that Everything that goes on, Romans 8, 28, is now done for your good. There's a ton of mystery involved in this, but this is the promise of God. We cannot put the, the work of Christ into some little corner of our lives. This is the context from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10. We'll, we'll end here in Hebrews. Hebrews 10. This is the context that they are working in or living in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, the, the difficulties are going on and it leads up into beautifully this passage of Romans of Hebrews 11 about what it means to live by faith in God. But he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. If you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property? What? People are being abused, thrown into jail, beaten, killed in some ways, and sometimes property being taken from them, and they joyfully accepted it? The righteous live not by the subjective understanding of what's going on around them, but by faith in the God who has promised to care for them and to bring them to their ultimate good ends. That is what it means to live by faith. Long and various discussion of all their troubles. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. They don't throw away, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, it has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will, not, will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, believing that God is working for his people. What keeps you going during the difficulties of life? Yourself, your spouse, your children, your job, your parents, your friends, your bank account, your own physical well-being, Good luck. Those things are all plague with sin. They will not win the day. And in fact, all of them are incredibly liable to let you down at any moment. Any of those things I've just listed off, today could be a day where those realities let you down. Who are you trusting for your future? Who are you leaning upon? According to Jeremiah, the people of Israel were quite comfortable leaning upon themselves. And we're quite satisfied. Things are going well from their perspective. Yeah, Babylon's raising up and they might, but really I've got a pretty good life here. I, I, you know, things are, I'm living the way that I want to live. They're quite comfortable leaning upon themselves. And our beverage of choice today really isn't much different. 
very satisfied with leaning upon ourselves. We're self-confident, self-assured people. I mean, just think about the diminishment of the authority of Scripture today. We're convinced we know better. We are convinced that we know how life works. We're convinced how we know how marriage works. We're convinced we know how sexuality works. We're convinced we know how gender works. We, we know all of these things. We know whether we should even work or not. In all of these areas, we think we know better than what God has revealed in Scripture. And here's the hard reality. The truth is, following God, living by faith in Him, will not make you friends with the world. It will not make you friends with the world. In fact, many times, trusting God and living for Him will put you at direct odds with the world. For example, there are many who might prosper and enjoy this life, and they do not love and trust Jesus. You can be at work, and and breaking the law at work will often get you ahead. Embezzlement? I mean, there's all kinds of ways, or just shaving money here and there, or being dishonest with a time clock, whatever it is. There's lots of ways to try to be dishonest at work that to get you ahead. And maybe you have fellow employees or an employer even who are in on the whole gag, and this is the way we just kind of milk the system. Dishonestly living. Maybe they all encourage it, but if you can't, if you say, I cannot be dishonest, laborer deserves his wage. I, 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 he who does not work does not eat. I, have an honor. I cannot steal, according to the Ten Commandments. Will not make, well, that, that will not make you friends in your work environment. Following God, walking his way, will not make you friends with the world. And there are thousands of illustrations that you could think about, situations where living by faith in, in God living according to his design, his plan, will not win you fans, will not win you popularity. But the question that Habakkuk is bringing and the writer of Hebrews brings up is that we do not live diagnosed upon how well things are going for us in this life, in this culture, at this time, in any of these subjective means. Are we trusting God? Are we living by faith in him, looking to him? What is your impulse in difficult times? Do you run to Jesus? You want to know an answer to that? Answer this. Do you run to Jesus when times are tough? Ask, how quickly do I run to prayer when things get tough? There's a quick diagnosing question. How quickly do you run? What's your impulse? How often do you run to prayer? Why don't we? Why don't we more often? Why don't we run to Christ? Why don't we have this impulse? Are we not fully convinced that God will make good on his promises? Probably not. I mean, I think there's some real work that we all could do of focusing upon God and his promises, taking our sights and setting on the larger scope of history, seeing a God who is working all things toward his appointed ends and developing our trust in this God who is doing exactly what he wants to do, the pinnacle of the cross, seeing God doing his work. We're not fully convinced, but... I think there's a hurdle that stands even this side of that hurdle. And it is the hurdle that we are too convinced that we think we can make good on our promises. We are self-sufficient. We'll let Jesus save us, whatever that means. But really, we think we have a pretty good grasp upon our lives. But that confidence will run out. We will get thwarted in our efforts. And that is when grace, and it actually is a grace when that happens, whenever we find out we are not the master of the universe. When we find out we can't even keep our own promises, that's a grace because then once we get over that hurdle, we're able to see 
there is someone who does. There is a God who does keep his promises. There is a God who does work for his people. And even though it may take them through very difficult, dark, and hard times, he ultimately is working for their final good. This is what God has done. He has sent his son and made good on his promises. Where we have failed, God has succeeded. And the question is, what or who are we trusting today? And may God grant us all repentance for seeking refuge in anything but him. And may he grant to us the faith that rests upon him alone. Let's pray. Father, do this work in our hearts. And I, I pray for my own heart, God, and every heart listening right now that you would reveal to us the hurdle of self-sufficiency, the barrier from trusting you that trusting in our own selves is. We do not want to be the, the Israelites who were quite confident and self-assured, who were persuaded more by what they wanted to hear than what they needed to hear. Father, bring repentance and conviction in every one of our hearts this morning in the areas where we are looking to ourselves as opposed to being willing and ready to abandon comfort, to abandon, abandon perceived security for, for true rest and hope and confidence living by faith in you and in you alone. So God, grant that repentance and then farther, farther God, Give us eyes to see that you are a God who has worked to save sinners apart from our own effort by sending your son to take upon himself the penalty for our rebellion so that we could be brought into your family and guaranteed, yes, salvation in all of its implications that we become your very own children, promised a glorious future with you. Do this work in our hearts, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.